0: It's good to see everyone at Gospel of Grace Fellowship, and we'll begin with prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for your word, that we can look at it and learn about who you are and what you require of us. We pray as we look at the great commission that you would give us wisdom to understand how you've ordained your church to go out and to preach the gospel and to convert those who are lost but also those who are your elect. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to discern what we are not to be about. And we ask for help in these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, as we continue to refute the new apostolic reformation movement, remember I mentioned the first part of it was their post-millennial eschatology. And we finished that last time. And so today we're moving into their reconstruction movement. And reconstructionism is where instead of the normal understanding that we have as Christians in the Great Commission where we have to go out and evangelize and through the gospel see dead sinners come to life. Instead of that, the idea in Reconstructionism is that Christians must take over political, geopolitical entities for the sake of Christ. That's how you should understand it. And so attached to Christian Reconstructionism is something called dominionism, And dominionism is the belief that we as believers have not just dominion over the animals, which is clearly taught in Genesis. We, as human beings made in the image of God, we have dominion over all other creatures. But in dominionism, we also have dominion over other human beings as believers in Christ. And we are to subjugate them in a geopolitical way. And so what we're going to be showing you is that this understanding of the Great Commission that the new apostolic reformation movement has is false. And we'll look at Matthew 28 in ways that we can interpret it, which clearly shows us that, yes, salvation is never a corporate issue. It's always an individual issue. It's individuals who are saved as they come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Now I want to begin by asking Bob, Bob, do you want to comment on how The New Apostolic Reformation Movement uses Matthew 28 in a false way. What are they claiming regarding the Great Commission? Well,
1: I wouldn't say only them because many reform groups do the same thing. Right. Uh, In fact, at one point in the 80s, they got together. Okay. The Reconstructionists and the Charismatic Version got together. Yeah, to do their dominion theology? Sure. So the idea is that Matthew, the, I wrote an article when I was in or a paper in seminary about this. Yeah. They go from the dominion mandate, they so they say in Genesis, and assume that means to other persons. Yes. And then it's reiterated with Noah, and then it comes to Matthew 28. And the idea is when you go to the ethnos, the nations, the idea is rather than individuals being converted wherever they may be in whatever part of the world they may be, in whatever political situation is in that world, they're called out and they're Christian. But the dominion idea is that we're to take dominion over other persons and geopolitical entities and force them. To behave like Christians whether they want to or not.
0: Well said. That's a great definition. Um, Just to back up what Bob is saying, let me give you a quote from Dutch Sheets. Dutch Sheets is one of the leading uh, proponents of the new apostolic reformation movement. Listen to what he says. This, by the way, is not a magazine I subscribe to. It's a charisma magazine. So it's a charismatic magazine. But nonetheless, they have an accurate quote here from Dutch Sheets, which will represent their position So here's the magazine. They say, quote, Dutch Sheets says that the church has long minimized the roles of apostles and prophets, but that was a mistake in his opinion. He says it's impossible to fulfill Matthew 28, Jesus' Great Commission, without apostles and prophets. That's because, as Sheets says, now here's Dutch Sheets. Here's a quote from him. Part of the New Apostolic Reformation Movement. He says, quote, While we, that would be Christians, were getting people saved... Unbelievers were discipling the nation. While we were getting them saved, they were taking over government. Unquote. So, notice the dilemma that Dutch Sheets is putting forward is that while we are saving people, in Dutch Sheets, it seems like that's a misguided idea because at the end of the day, he says they, the unregenerate, were taking over government. And the implication is that's what we should be doing at least alongside of saving people. And so notice the claim of the New Apostolic Reformation movement is that Christians do have this dominion that we should be taking over institutions within government. And so if we go out and preach the gospel and we see many people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and yet we don't take over the school board and we don't take over the mayoral position in Minneapolis and we don't take over the governorship and the Senate and the House and on and on and on, we are failures. That's what the New Apostolic Reformation Movement is teaching. And what they do is they abuse, as Bob was saying, Matthew 28. They read into the idea of go and discipling the nations as the idea of taking geopolitical entities, whether it's the Senate, the House, the school board, and Christianizing them. And that's what Bob has been laboring to show, that this Christianization isn't the same as conversion. And so when you look out at the world and you see quote-unquote Christendom, Christendom isn't a regenerate human being who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, but rather it's nations who have maybe an ethos at best that is somehow rooted in the Old or the New Testament, but still they have masses of people who are unregenerate sinners who are living in rebellion against God. And so Christendom has never been the church. It's always been the church, been comprised of individuals have repented and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do is I want to go through Matthew 28 with you, and we're going to start just exegeting this passage. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 28, verses 16 through 17. Let's begin there, but as you're turning then to Matthew 28, verses 16 through 17, let us recall that in the very beginning of the chapter, we have the reference to the resurrection, and as Jesus is raised from the dead recall that he first shows himself to the women and they are to go and proclaim to the rest of the disciples the men that Jesus is not only raised but he is going to meet with them personally in Galilee in his resurrected state. And so here in Matthew 28:16 through 17 Jesus is meeting them in Galilee Notice here verse 16, it says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. It is, now I just want to stop there in verse 17. Notice the term there, doubtful. That comes from the verb distazo, and it only occurs here and in Matthew 14 31. It does not occur anywhere in the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament, and it occurs nowhere else in the New Testament other than Matthew 14, 31. Let me give you a quote from a great scholar in the book of Matthew, William Lane. He says this about this verb. He says, it's a relatively rare verb not found, again, in the LXX, the Septuagint, or in classical Greek. But he says, it does convey the basic idea of uncertainty, puzzlement, or being at a loss. Now, the reason I want to read this to you is it sounds like, okay, big deal. It is a big deal because what we want to understand at the beginning is the frame of mind that the disciples are in. This verb probably means not that they are doubtful of Christ's resurrection, but that they really are as to a loss as to how to relate now to the resurrected Lord. They really don't know what it's going to be like now to relate to him. The one that they had lived with, remember he was bodily with them for three years, And now they have to relate to him in a different way. And so that's the idea. The idea is more of a puzzlement rather than doubting in faith. In other words, it's not that they don't have faith in Christ. It's that they don't know how to relate to him. That's what's being conveyed. Now, why do I mention that? Well, let's put up Matthew 28, 18, the very next verse. Notice it says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying... Now, notice this opening phrase. I'm just going to go very deliberately piece by piece through this. There's a lot of wording here that's really unnecessary. And the reason I point that out is because in the Greek, I think Matthew's trying to show us something. In other words, Jesus came up, a form of Urkabai, spoke to them saying, okay, that's a lot of, he came, he was saying, he spoke. That's a lot of verbiage just to say that Jesus spoke to his disciples. The reason why that's being you know, triple redundant there, that he came to them spoke to them and was saying to them is to show you that Jesus took the initiative. Jesus took the initiative with disciples who really were doubting now how they're going to relate to him. At least they're in a quandary as to how they're going to do it. So he's taking the initiative, and notice right after that then, the first thing he says to them is, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's a very significant phrase because by Jesus using it, He is linking himself to the Messiah of Daniel chapter 7 who is going to rule and reign over the kingdom. That is the kingdom on earth. In fact, turn your Bibles to Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Let's look at what Jesus is linking himself to. Again, Daniel 7, 13 through 14. And again, I'm claiming that when he says all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, that's what he's alluding to. That's where the Jewish disciples' mind would have gone biblically. Daniel seven thirteen through fourteen. Daniel seven thirteen through fourteen, just giving you time to turn to it. Notice here in Daniel seven thirteen, I'll pick it up there. It says whoops, I just scrolled too far. I gotta go back with my computer here. <coughs> It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. And notice verse 14, it says, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one Which will not be destroyed. Now, notice here that phrase in verse 14 where it says, And to him was given dominion. That's the idea. Jesus has all authority. So, the first words to his disciples in his resurrected state is that he is the Messiah who has all of the authority that was promised to rule and reign over the earth from Daniel chapter 7. And the reason that is a significant development in the book of Matthew is remember that Matthew is bracketed by the Davidic kingship of Christ. Remember, in, what do we read about in Matthew chapter 1? Matthew chapter 1, it's the complete lineage of David. That Jesus comes from the lineage of David, and it's from David which comes the right to rule as the Messiah over the, the whole world. Not just Israel, but the world. Now, in Matthew chapter 28, the very last chapter of the entire book, you have this Davidic kingdom idea reasserted so that we know that Jesus is the Messiah who is to rule and who is to reign. So all authority has been given to him. Now, let me play off of this idea of authority somewhat. I want to talk about the book of Revelation, and this may seem somewhat odd to do this, but the reason I want to talk about Christ's authority as the Messiah and related to the book of Revelation is because we're dealing with the new apostolic reformation movement who is claiming that this authority has been given to the church now during the church age so that we should have dominion over the earth now. But what I want to do is help you build, remember, the book of Revelation is all about how this authority of Christ plays itself out. So all through the Bible, you're given sayings about Christ's authority. The book of Revelation spells it out. What does it look like? So let me go through the structure of Revelation, and I did this in our studies, but let me do it again because I think it's essential. If you're a note taker, you may want to take some notes here. Revelation chapter 5, when you read that chapter, it's in the throne room. And the issue is who is worthy of unleashing the wrath of God, beginning with the seals, going to the trumpets, going to the bulls, and then bringing the kingdom. Remember, who was the one who was worthy to begin that process and open the seals? It's Jesus. Jesus was found to do that. And so what happens throughout the book of Revelation from chapter five on is you begin with so you have seven seal judgments you have seven trumpet judgments, and you have seven bowl judgments. Do not make the mistake, as many a scholars in the past have, in claiming or believing that somehow these are just recapitulating the same period of time. In other words, some scholars believe in this doctrine of recapitulation where the seven seals take you from the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel to the end, and then you get to the seven trumpets, and it goes back to the... The beginning of the 70th week and it takes you to the end. And then you get to the seven bowls, it begins at the beginning of the 70th week and takes you through the end. That is not true. They are consecutive. And so, what you want to see is that at every seventh, the seventh seal opens up to the seven bowls or the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet opens up to the seven bowls. And at the end of the seven bowls, it says in Revelation 15, verse 1 that the wrath of God is finished. What can we conclude from that? If the wrath of God is finished with the seventh bowl, we can conclude that the, it began with the seven seals and the seven trumpets. At each seven, whether it's the seventh seal, which is Revelation 8.5, you have storm theophany, at the seventh, I'm sorry, that's the seventh trumpet. Before that, at the seventh seal, you have storm theophany. At the seventh trumpet, which is Revelation 8:5, you have storm theophany. And again, at the seventh bowl, Revelation 11:19, you have storm theophany. Now, what I'm saying, storm theophany, storm theophany is where you have lightning, you have hail, you have thunder, and it's shown in the throne room of God. Just as happened at Mount Sinai. Why is that significant? Because it shows you whether it's the seals, whether it's the trumpets, and whether it's the bowls, all of them come from Jesus Christ. He is the one who started it all. So why is that important? Because all wrath comes from him. He has all authority. And I'm saying that because I have seen so many movements where pre-wrath or post-trib or someone will say, well, I don't believe that this part is the wrath of God, the seals. Well, it all comes from him. Every bit of it. It's all from Jesus. So why do you have the storm theophany at the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, the seventh bull? Because it's all Jesus. Now why is that important? Because he's the one who has all authority. He's the one from Daniel chapter 7. He's the one that we read about in the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me. But somehow we as Christians, when we interpret the book of Revelation, we say, well, he doesn't really have the authority to do those types of judgments in the seal judgments. Well, yes, He does. It's all his wrath. And yes, he uses the nations as vessels of his wrath. We know that from Isaiah chapter 10, he used Assyria as a weapon of his wrath against his people Israel. So here's the grand point. If Jesus has all authority, he's pouring all wrath out. Isn't it interesting at the very end of time, the last seven years of this age, does he give authority to the church? No, he gives authority in Revelation 6, 8 to death and Hades and the nations to wage war so that you lose a quarter of the earth's population. Later, you lose a third in the trumpet judgments of the earth's population. By the way, that's why we know the doctrine of recapitulation, that the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls are just covering the same territory. It's false because a quarter is less than a third. It's getting progressively worse as you go from the seals to the trumpets to the bulls. That's the point but the point is Jesus has all authority and he gives it to death and Hades, Revelation 6, 8. And then when you get to Revelation 13, 5, he gives it to the Antichrist. So Dutch Sheet says, now we have been given that authority to rule and reign. Well, that's interesting news if you read the Bible because Jesus is giving it to death and Hades and to the Antichrist. It's certainly not being given to us. So why isn't Dutch Sheets reading the book of Revelation? He should be spending more time doing that. That's what we need to be doing. Let's be good students of the word. So dear ones, who has all authority? Jesus does. And that authority will one day be given to us to rule and to reign. We as the people of Christ will rule and reign with him. But it is not until after the 70th week of Daniel, and he establishes his millennial kingdom. This is why, like Bob has been saying, if we don't get the eschatology right, we're going to be off on everything else. When do we rule and reign with Christ? Is it now? Is it during the 70th week? Or is it after he establishes the kingdom? It's after he establishes the kingdom. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. Bob will be coming to this, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3, and I don't mean to, Bob will get into much greater detail than I will here, but recall, this is where you had the Corinthian Christians who are engaged in judgment with one another, they're actually filing lawsuits against one another. And the concern that I think Paul had was that they're running their dirty laundry, so to speak, in view of the public, in the world. And his point is, you are going to be the ones who are going to rule over the entire world, and yet you can't settle simple disputes among yourselves. 1 Corinthians 6.3, notice Paul says, Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Notice the phrase, we will judge. Future active indicative of krino. Krino is the verb. It's future active indicative. What's the future tense? It means it's not now. One day in the future, we will rule with Christ. In fact, we'll even judge the angels. But it's not now. If it were now, and we were continuously to rule, as Dutch Sheets says, it would be in the present tense, not only denoting that it's happening now, but the idea that it would be ongoing action, that it's to be continuously done. Okay. Do you remember uh, last week I talked about seek, ask, and knock? And I said, those are present active commands. They're imperatives. But the present tense, I said, was not just that it's now, but it's continuously. That our whole Christian lives are to be dedicated to seeking, asking, and knocking in prayer the good things from God. It's not that we did that once. Yeah, I tried that back in February 3rd of 2020, and I'm all done with that. I'm I'm no longer seeking, asking, and knocking. No, present tense continuously. So if If Paul's point is that you and I are in judging the world and the angels now, the idea is it would be in the present tense we're to continuously do that. He doesn't say that. He puts it in the future. Well, when? Well, obviously it's not in the 70th week of Daniel because Christ gave authority to whom? Death, Hades, and Antichrist. So it's after that. That's where we're going to rule and reign. And so why Are Christians being baffled by the new apostolic reformation movement saying, well, we're going to have authority, rule, and terrain right now? That's a question that we have to ask. Yes. Brian.
2: Well, the simple answer is that they don't know their Bible. I think that's the issue. In in Dutch Sheets, all of the uh, uh, meetings and stuff that he was having uh, across the nation, usually in the Southwest, but he was leading up to uh, uh, the 20, uh, the, the midterm elections, and he had all these sayings and all these, uh, what, what, what are they called, Bob, the, the decrees and so on and so forth that all yeah. the people coming there would, would repeat and they'd say these things at the end of his uh, get-togethers. Yes. We'll talk about those later yeah. if we get and, to them, and, right? And, and the problem is, is that, and you were exactly right when you said that what Dutch Sheets should concentrate on is reading the book of Revelation because he doesn't, apparently. Right. And he is basically fighting against God's providence. He, he thinks he can
0: change God's providence or he That's doesn't right. know God's providence because he doesn't read the book of Revelation. Absolutely. And so these decrees, and we'll talk about these later, um, this is really where I think the movement of the New Apostolic Reformation movement starts to blend or touch with the Word of Faith movement. Remember in the Word of Faith movement, they equivocate on the term faith. So when you and I talk about biblical faith, it always has the valid object of Jesus Christ. His person and his work. So how many times will you watch like maybe um, Hallmark Channel? I, by the way, I never, never watched the Hallmark Channel. But every now and then you'll see someone talk about, you know, keeping the faith And it's in our culture where they're going to keep the faith, but you never know what the faith is in, right? Faith in what? Faith that my life is just going to get better because the stars are all aligned? Faith that what? Faith in what? So biblical faith always has an object, the person and work of Christ. That's the object of our faith. Well, in the New Apostolic Reformation movement, which is tying off of the Word of Faith movement, the Word of Faith movement has faith, To be a force. So, no longer is it directed towards the object of the person and work of Christ, but faith is used like a force in which our words can manipulate reality. And so, we are to be like God and speak things into existence using decrees. And that's. I'm sorry? It is. It's very much the occult. Exactly. It's very much divination. Trying to speak things into existence, basically like a spell, casting a spell, things like that. So, this is exactly what Dutch Sheets is claiming when he comes up with his list of decrees. I remember I've told this many times, but it always strikes me as what it looks like to have a word of faith kind of faith. Ken Copeland was a pilot. In fact, I have a friend who used to flight instruct uh, some people down at Flight Safety, and he had had Ken Copeland in their simulators. Well, Ken Copeland, a Word of Faith teacher, claimed that he could speak storms in and out of existence. Okay, that's the kind of power that these people are claiming. So what's the point? So Dutch Sheets believes that if we will speak the restoration of the United States as a quote-unquote Christian nation, voila, it will happen. And the problem is the reason in Dutch Sheets' mind and the New Apostolic Reformation movement, and those in the Word of Faith movement, the reason why we don't have a Christianized nation is because the rest of us, dunderheaded Christians, won't start speaking these things into being. That's the problem. So here he takes a, per- he distorts the definition of faith, distorts it, and then will hit you over the head with it, calling you the bad Christian, when in fact you have the biblical definition of faith, which is directed towards the person and work of Christ. That's what's going on here. So let's continue, though, in Matthew 28. Notice he says, all authority then has been given to him, and we see that that authority will not extend to us until after the 70th week of Daniel. But now what are we to do? Okay, he says, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, what I want to do is talk about the different components of this here. First of all, the command in this entire section is to make disciples. Some will say that the command is to go, and that's implied, but the main command, the imperative, is to make disciples. All of the other participles, whether it's baptizing as a participle, whether it's teaching as another participle. These are the means by which we are to make disciples. And so the question for us, are these disciples to be made from individuals or of individuals? Or are they to be disciples made of geopolitical entities? In other words, when we're going to disciple, baptize, and to teach, are we doing that to a school board? Or are we doing it to individuals who will repent and believe? Well, I think it's obvious it's the latter. It's to individuals. It's not to corporate entities. And so what I want to do for just a moment is I want to focus biblically on the data that shows us that justification is never a corporate issue. It is always an individual issue. And believe it or not, as we address this, we're not only addressing the new apostolic reformation heresy, but how many in here have ever heard of the new perspectives on Paul from a man like N.T. Wright or J.P. Sanders They believe that salvation is a corporate issue. And in my humble opinion, after looking at all that they teach, if you just want to take the 30,000-foot view of it all, it's just Marxism. Salvation isn't individual. Oh, you evil, individualistic, capitalistic, Western people built on the Reformation. You're all evil. Don't you understand that salvation has always been corporate, and maybe Karl Marx really had something going. It's all corporate. That's really where it is. It's the spirit of the age. Everything's got to be corporate. Well, that's interesting because that would be news to the writers of the New Testament who saw salvation as an individual issue. In fact, turn your Bibles. Let's begin our trek here to show you that this discipleship must be individual and not for corporate bodies. Let's begin in Luke 15:7. Let's look at Luke 15:7. I just want to begin in the Gospels with you. Luke 15:7. I want you to see what Jesus says here regarding how salvation comes. Luke 15:7. Please turn your Bibles there. Again, what we're wrestling with is when Jesus says here in Matthew 28, "Go therefore and make disciples are the disciples of corporate entities like a school board the Senate or the House of the United States or the individuals. Well, clearly they're individuals. Notice Luke fifteen seven. Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous person who needs no repentance. Well, wait a minute now. If, in fact, discipleship, repentance, and faith is a corporate issue, why is Jesus saying that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents? Why is he focusing on that? Why isn't he, as Dutch Sheets would advocate, saying, well, hey, um, all of heaven is going to rejoice once you get the school board Christianized, or once you get the mayoral politics solved, or once you take control of the House, the Senate, or the presidency, or the judiciary? No, it's where one sinner repents. And so, over and over through the Bible, salvation and discipleship is of the elect who are called out by God's grace, who repent and believe and learn the word of God are being transformed by the renewing of their mind because of the scriptures and therefore are going to be conformed to the image of his son. Let's look at another passage. These really came to my mind because Bob and I had done so much CIC on Galatians together and I wanted to get to Galatians 2.16. Please turn your Bibles and we'll spend some time in Galatians here. Galatians 2.16 If you want a bunch of passages that clearly show salvation is an individual issue and not a corporate issue, the book of Galatians is for you. This is where I would go. If I were to debate N.T. Wright, I would go right to the book of Galatians and show that justification is not corporate. It is individuals who repent and believe and are added to the corporate body of Christ. But they come as individuals. Notice Galatians... 2.16. Here Paul is arguing how one is not justified. He says nevertheless knowing that a man, now let's just stop there. Let's stop with the man. That's anthropos. It's a noun and it's nominative singular masculine. It's in the singular. So it's a man. Not many men. Not many men and women. He's just thinking of one man. That is, this is how every person is not justified. So it applies to the individual. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So notice that a man is not justified by works of the law. Let's turn ahead to Galatians 3.11. Galatians 3.11, and again, see the individual idea that no one is justified by the law. Galatians 3.11. Hope you've turned there. Galatians 3.11, notice Paul says, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, and I'll stop there. Notice that no one... That is udes. It's an adjective. It's a nominative singular masculine. Nominative singular masculine. So why is the singular important? Because it's the individual. Okay. Again, no individual is justified by the law before God. And notice it says here he cites from the Old Testament. He says the righteous man shall live by faith. Now notice the phrase righteous man. That's actually one term in the Greek. It's the adjective dechaos. It's an adjective, it's nominative, masculine, it's singular. So again and again, how is a person justified or not justified? Well, we don't do it corporately, it's at the individual basis. That's how we see it. Let's turn to another one, Galatians 5 3. Galatians 5 3. Galatians 5.3. And this is a little tricky here. And I'll explain why in a moment. Notice Galatians 5.3. He says, and I testify again to every man. Okay, now stop there with every. The term every there in Galatians 5.3 is pas. And the way I would render it is not every but each. Because it's an adjective, but it's a dative singular. So it's in the singular meaning that, again, it's not a group of people, but it's each person as an individual. So the way I would render it is, and I testify to each man or each woman, each individual, all right? So notice here the term man is, again, anthropos, and it's a noun, dative singular, masculine. So it's in the singular. So each man who receives circumcision, that he is... By the way, that's a present act of indicative third person singular. So again, it's in the singular. Each person is under obligation to keep the whole law. So again, you don't see corporate entities, but the responsibility of the individual. If you're going to be justified by the law, you don't do it corporately, but you would have to keep the whole law yourself. That's what he's laying out for us in Galatians five three. And so over and over again, we see that salvation is an individual issue. Now, I'm going to relate this to the elect. What disciples are comprised of is God's elect. At the end of the day, all of God's elect will be disciples, and only God's elect will be his disciples. And so when we go out into the world to disciple and to preach the gospel, we have to realize that the entire school board is very unlikely to come to faith in Christ. It is only God's elect. Now I want to show you that from a passage that it's interesting. I know Bob, you debated um, what was the fellow who was open theist, uh, Greg Boyd? Greg Boyd, yeah. Greg Boyd even says, if there's any passage that convinces him, an open theist, that the doctrine of election is true, it's Acts 1348. I thought that was a powerful admission by uh, a heretic. But uh, turn your Bibles to Acts 1348. please turn there. Acts 13.48, this is where Paul was preaching at Antioch, Pisidia. And I just want you to see, who are the disciples? Is it going to be just people that we take over? Or is it going to be comprised only of God's elect? Well, it's only of God's elect. Acts 13.48, it says, When the Gentiles heard this would be the preaching of the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, how many believed? Well, it's as many as had been appointed to eternal life. They're the ones who believed. And so, again, when you and I go out into the world, we don't see an E for elect on people's forehead. We have no idea who they are. So our role in making disciples, as Paul's was, is simply to preach, and then what God does by the Holy Spirit is he enables his elect to believe and to receive. To receive and to believe the gospel, to repent and to turn to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what they do. Okay, so that's Acts 13, 48. Let's turn to one more, John ten, twenty seven through twenty eight. I just want to labor the point that salvation is not corporate, it's individual and it's only for God's elect. John ten twenty seven through twenty eight. Please turn your Bibles there. Now, why is this important? As we're evangelizing and making disciples, again, it's not the corporate entities because never will you have an entire U.S. Senate filled with God's elect, more than likely. When we come to Matthew 7, we'll realize that wide is the path that leads to destruction. Many enter in through it, but narrow is the path that leads to salvation, Jesus says, and few find it. So Jesus is claiming it's always going to be the narrow it's always the remnant. It's always the minority report. And by the way, I, I'll cite my, our good friend here, Adam O'Lean, who once said to me, Eric, the remnant is not a winning political strategy. The reason why we lose politically, eventually, is because we are the narrow group. If we were part of the wide group, we would have political power. But because we're part of the narrow group, things are going to get worse. And worse, and worse for us, until Jesus establishes his kingdom. That's the point. Yes? And plus, we don't cheat. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for throwing that out there. Very good. That's right. That's right. Very good. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, Brian. And when you say
2: narrow, you don't mean narrow-minded. Yes. Yes.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you for pointing that out. Yes, when Jesus is using the term narrow, he means that it's through him alone. Right As he says in John fourteen six that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. And so he is that narrow gate. So yes, absolutely good point, Brian. Well, I wanted to say real quick on yes. your, on
2: your uh, great commission, uh, Matthew uh, twenty eight nineteen 19, uh, make disciples of all the nations. Then in Acts 1, uh, he basically is saying... The same thing from Judea, Samaria to yes. the ends of the earth. So it, he's point. saying the same thing. Absolutely, You're t- yes, Bob.
1: One thing not to forget, because I've, we, critical issues have been doing YouTube's and yes. podcasts on this for like twenty sessions. Yeah. Much of what happens is predicated on the idea that you get special revelations from God. Yes. Beyond Scripture. Amen. Okay, and in these various movements, you take that away, and all you have is scripture yep. and valid implications and applications. But groups will say it does. It's a participle. Going, make disciples is the imperative. Yeah. Assumptions, you're going. But they'll say you need to get a special revelation about where to go, when to go, what to say when you get there there would be ideas in your mind beyond scripture and that those are binding on you and that if you don't get it right things are going to go wrong and it's your own fault. Wow. And I believed that for many years and it's a miracle I survived it. I I, I mean I went places where um, it's amazing I'm not dead. That's all I can say. Yeah. yeah, Um, Because I thought God told me I had to do certain things. Sure. And there was a guy who was totally crazy who up murdering his father Wow and uh, he attacked me when I went to try to help him one time yeah but we need biblical binding and loosing amen so what God has bound us to he's bound all Christians to yes what loose means to allow and so all Christians are allowed you know given wisdom and circumstances yes what's loose But in the other version of this, special, unique revelations come to people, whether through the apostles and prophets, beyond the biblical ones, or to the individual. And those revelations become God's marching order. And if you don't follow that marching order, things go bad, and it's your own fault. Yes. And it's evidence, in many cases, that you're cursed. Wow! because you didn't listen to what God was saying. Th- that is just interwoven into all of this. Hmm. And I know it very well because I was in the shepherding movement in the 70s and we were under people that heard from God and he submitted to other people in sort of a trickle-down spirituality. Yeah. So what we're doing, here's why it's like two totally different worldviews. We're looking at the text. Mm -hmm. We're wanting to know what it says, how it applies to all Christians throughout the church age. Yeah. Because that's what God's called. We're not expecting God's going to give us a special, unique revelation. Right. That's binding on us, and we better go do it. So... God intervenes providentially and gets us to the right place at the right time. So that's built into this. Right. The other thing about this material we've been looking at, throughout the book on intercession, uh, Mr. Sheets says that God's already done his part, and he wants us to do our part. And so even in intercession, rather than bringing our concerns to Christ at the throne of grace,
0: Yeah
1: and trusting him to take care of us even when we're not sure what to do in that scheme you need to get revelations from the holy spirit and then go to the throne and tell god what to do wow and that's the decrees decree what to god what god must do and that's what they were doing with this thing it didn't work out very well, did it? But no. <laughs> um, so what you you're putting all this weight on, decreeing to God this and this and this, because I got a revelation. Yes. And that is not. Uh, it, it's it's burdensome and oppressive because in the end, as I've said many times, as people get older, life gets more difficult. Families have troubles. Eventually, the only conclusion anyone can come to is that they failed, they failed horribly, and God's had enough of them. Yeah. What did I do wrong? I heard elderly saints who, who lived as an exemplary life as anybody else I knew at the end saying, what did I do wrong? Right. And the people that are on the podium and in the news, and extolled as the great leaders, are not ever owning up that anything's wrong in their lives. It's just us. Mm. We failed. If you didn't give enough money, you're cursed. Yeah. And so to to counteract that, and I'll be talking about that a lot as we go through Corinthians. Yes. Blessing and cursing. Forgiveness of sins, being part of the body of Christ, are not based on special knowledge and special revelations. And what we did is based on relationship. Yeah, yeah. And so God gives good gifts. You, you were talking about that last week. Yeah. So instead of going to the throne of grace, knowing God cares for me, he loves me. I'm confused many times and I can trust him to take care of me. I have to get a revelation and go and decree what God's going to do. Yes. And that comes out throughout that book. And having lived through that, all I can say is people are going to be hurt. They're going to be full of fear. They'll end up failing. And it sounds really great to the people under 40 or who are healthy, wealthy, and ready to go. Yeah. And in the end... It leaves dear saints harmed, fearful, and thinking there's no hope. Amen. And if I didn't learn anything else from that, I learned we need to care for the suffering saints and not
0: dump more guilt on them. Right, right. Yeah, what was your saying, Bob? There's not a single problem in the world that can't be made worse by adding guilt.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. It wasn't mine. I think your cartoon oh, okay. so, Yeah, whatever's wrong,
0: it can be made worse by adding guilt to <laughs> yeah. it. That's right. Yeah, your tire's
1: right. flat. Well, you should have checked it yeah.
0: before you
2: left.
0: <laughs> very well said. Yeah, you know, the New Apostolic Reformation Movement, like so many others, it's a mystical movement, and it departs from Scripture alone. So we're going to come to this later where we're going to show that because we have no modern day apostles or prophets we can't get new revelation therefore we are to be people of the word. And that's why we see in the book of Jude we are to contend earnestly for the faith once and for all. The term by the way once and for all there is hapax. It means once and never again, once and for all handed down to the saints. Well if it was continuously if we were continuously being given new revelation Why does Jude say contend for the faith once and for all, handed down to the saints? And we'll make the case, again, that the apostles are a unique first-century group that cannot be replicated today. And as we read earlier from Dutch Sheets himself, they must have modern-day apostles and prophets, as Bob was saying, because they need this new revelation. So once you destroy the idea that you cannot... If you prove that you cannot have new modern-day apostles and prophets it's really game over for them because they need extra biblical revelation. But what I want to do here is just focus on the revelation that we do have and show you that reading a corporate reading into Matthew 28 is unbiblical. It's an individual who's going to be discipled. And let's just leave here with John 10, 27, and I'll keep moving on. But notice John 10, 27 through 28. What I'm showing you again is not only is it the individual, but it's the elect, So that's why it's a fool's errand to go try to Christianize, quote-unquote, a corporate board, because you don't know who the elect is. You don't know if the group of senators... you, You don't know. So our role is very limited. Let's just stay in our lane. My role as a believer is to proclaim the gospel, and God does the rest. As Mike Gendron said, I'm the mail carrier. I deliver the mail, and whatever happens with the mail after that, that's between God and the individual. But see, the people like... This new Apostolic Reformation Movement proponent, Judge Sheets, they don't want to stay in their lane. They want to take authority that was never given to them by God. By the way, that's what Jude refutes. Jude refutes those who usurp their God given boundaries. So let's look at John 10, 27 through 28. Notice Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. Now stop there. When he says my sheep, it's not every person, it's just his sheep that hear his voice. The term here, there, akuo, is a term meaning hearing with salvation, hearing with faith. Okay, so it's not just hearing the words, but it's hearing unto faith. A good example of that would be Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The famous Shema. Now, when God said that in Deuteronomy 6.4, did he mean just hear these words and just keep reciting them, use them as a mantra? No, he meant hear and believe. That you're not like the pagans and the polytheists out there. But your God is the one God who is the God of Israel. So the hearing is hearing unto faith. And so Jesus, by saying that simple phrase, my sheep hear my voice, he's saying his elect hear and believe his gospel, the good news about who he is and what he's done. That's all wrapped into that very small little section. And notice he says, and I know them, and they follow me. That's discipleship, it's his sheep. It's the doctrine of the elect. And they're the ones who follow him. And he says, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Notice the phrase, and they will never perish. That's a negation of the subjunctive mood. The most It's so beautiful because it's the strongest way of negating something in the New Testament. Because in the subjunctive mood, it talks about possibility. Jesus isn't saying that theres they will never perish. A better rendering would be, there's not even a possibility of them future, of their future perishing. Amen. That's the idea. There's not even a possibility of them ever perishing. It's the strongest way of negating something. It's the negation of the subjunctive. There's not even a possibility that his elect will ever perish. That's how secure the individual who comes to faith in Christ because they were his elect, God regenerated them. Again, 1 Corinthians 12.3, no one can say, Jesus, Lord, except what? By the Spirit. It's a complete miraculous work of God. Why? Because you and I, as we laid out last week, we're all dead sinners in Adam. What can dead people do? Nothing. And so it's completely a work of God. Completely. So then why is Dutch Sheets browbeating people saying, you know, the problem is that yes, you may have saved some, but you didn't take over the Senate, you didn't take over the mayor, the mayoral race, the gubernatorial race, or what have you. You didn't take that position, that position. Well, that's not our doing. That's all providentially run by God, and we'll show that. So, the other thing I want to talk about here, I want to keep moving. Notice here in red, he talks about the nations. And the nations are, in the context here, ethnos, it's simply the geographical boundaries that God has created in which you have the majority pagans who will never believe, the unregenerate, and then you have the narrow lot of the elect. And it's from those geographical nations that people, whether they're Jew or Gentile, are going to become the one new man by trusting in Christ, as Paul lays out in Ephesians 2.15. So as Jews and Gentiles repent and believe, they're added to the one new man, the church. And therefore, they belong to Christ. And so that's what the nations are. But notice here, he says, observe all that I commanded you. Now, let's think about that for just a moment If Dutch Sheets and the New Apostolic Reformation Movement, if they're right, this has to apply to geopolitical entities. Does that mean, then, think about the ramifications. If to observe all that I commanded you, if that applies to the government, for example, the United States, are we saying, are we willing to say, thus saith the Lord from Scripture, that the U.S. House, Senate, and the presidency, they are sinning because they are not keeping the Lord's Supper? Jesus commands us, as often as you do this implied, you will do this, do this in remembrance of me. That's a command. What about the fact that the government does forsake the assembling together as believers? Are they rebelling against God? Well, no, because the government has a different role than the state. God is sovereign and rules over both, but the role of the church is to proclaim the gospel and see the elect come to faith and to disciple them But the role of the state ordained by God is to restrain the murderer, the thief. Now, should I start running out and trying to find the murderers and the thieves as a pastor? No, it's not my job. That's not my job. I'm not good at it, right? I shouldn't just set up a a speed trap out here and start pulling people over and say, hey, well, you know, I'm an elder at this church, you know. That's not my role. Stay in your lane. Now, let's, um, let's look at a distinction between the church and the state in a very important text in Matthew. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 22, 21. And again, the reason I'm doing that is because I'm talking about observing all that I commanded you. Who is that? Is that for the individual believer? Or is it for the corporate bodies like the the Senate, the House, the Presidency, the Judiciary, etc.? Well, no, it's for the individual believer. Let's talk about Matthew 22, 21. As you turn there, remember Jesus is being put in a dilemma by these Pharisees, these religious leaders who want to catch him. And the dilemma, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar? I want you to feel the weightiness of this dilemma. Remember, you had Herodians who they would have thought that, yes, the temple is good, it's great, but we can't pay anything to the Romans. And therefore, we have a big problem with anyone who says that you can pay a poll tax. On the other hand, you have the Romans who want to kill anyone who won't pay their poll tax. I'm sorry, I I meant the Herodians and the Romans are on the same side. The Pharisees are on the opposite side. The Pharisees say, no, don't pay the poll tax. The Herodians and the Romans say, pay the poll tax. So they're putting Jesus in the quandary where if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay the poll tax, He's made the Pharisees happy, but he's offended the Herodians and the Romans, so they want to kill him. But if he says, yes, you should pay the poll tax, now he's offended the pious Jews, and they want to kill him. So at the end of the day, someone wants to kill Jesus, no matter how he answers. That's called a dilemma. By the way, it's a, when you're debating a, an opponent and you have a good point to make, put him in a dilemma where it's either have this absurd... For example, let's just real quickly... Do you realize in our creation debate, whether they're talking about the existence of God? The atheist is in a dilemma, Because the universe can't be eternal. Why? It violates the second law of thermodynamics, but it also can't self-create itself. Why? Because it violates the law of non-contradiction. So the atheist is in a dilemma. Either you're going to deny a law of science or the second law of thermodynamics, I'm sorry, the second law of thermodynamics, which is the law of science, or you're going to deny a law of logic. So that's what you do with an opponent. But notice how skillfully Jesus gets out of this dilemma. He goes right between the horns. Notice what he says, Matthew twenty-two twenty-one. It says, uh, he asked them whose picture is on the coin. And then in verse 21, that's what I have on the screen here. It says, they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So notice what Jesus is affirming is that Caesar has his place for now. One day, it's going to be Jesus who is Caesar as well over the entire world. But for now, Caesar gets what is his, and God gets what is his. Now, God is sovereign over all things, but the idea is that there's not a blending between state government and the people of God. The people of God are not engaged in trying to set up a political entity No, there's a distinction. So again, me as a pastor, my role is not to catch the criminal. That's the role of the government. The role of the government is not to institutionalize the Lord's Supper. If they did, they'd goof it up. I mean, these are the people who can't run anything very well. Do you want them running the Lord's Supper? You'd be back to transubstantiation like that. You don't want them running anything. Are you with me? So the church and the state are two separate entities. Now, let me just hit one issue in our governance. There's been a misnomer, I think, in the Constitution that there's a separation of church and state. And the, the, the theory is there, but here's the point. What that usually looks like is you and I have to grovel for a 501c3 to say what we want, but then you have institutionalized religions in the government. Let me explain why. My son, some years ago, is going to a private school, in Minnetonka, I walk in first day. It says Confucius classrooms. Confucius classrooms. Well, the last I checked, Confucianism is a religion, and a lot. The last time I checked, a lot of my tax dollars are going to pay for that public school, which is now. Can you imagine if it said Christ classrooms on there? How how long would it take the ACLU to be there? Well, so here's my point. The point is, there's religious liberty. And what's protected in the First Amendment is the free exercise thereof. Are you with me? So we don't nationalize a religion. That's supposed to be off limits. But they're doing so, aren't they? And you and I see it, but we just stay in our lane. We just keep preaching the gospel, seeing the elect come to faith. And as that happens, Christ's kingdom is being built. It's imperceptible to us. We can't see it because we we don't see people with an E on their head. But the kingdom is being built and one day Jesus is going to rule and reign and you and I with him but it's not now. It's in the future after the 70th week of Daniel. And so yes, the great commission is given not to corporate entities but for individuals. It is for the elect that God calls out who are to be baptized. Are we to baptize the senate? Are we to baptize? Think about the uh, mayor of Minneapolis or the staff that he has? No, the baptism is for those who believe, and so yes, this is about not political entities, but individuals who come to faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, Brian,
2: uh, a fellow by the name of David Wheaton had a uh, guest on the last couple of Saturdays, and he was relating a. Uh, uh, christian music to yeah. the uh, uh nar and things like that but the interesting thing was the guest he had on there who was real knowledgeable in this he says and i've heard this elsewhere that over 80 percent of all churches in america fall under that nar or portions of it are involved in their church so wow. th-
0: that's proof of the narrow gate Wow, very good. Thank you. That's a good, good way to end on. Thank you, Brian. Thank you all. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the great commission that you've given us, that you've used even us as vessels of your mercy, that we can proclaim your gospel, and with boldness and with love, we can give your truth And that you've promised that you will use it to bring your elect into the kingdom. We pray, Lord, that we would be those who stay in our lane, realizing our role, and that we would be about your business, that we would not try to Christianize the government, but we would stay within the bounds that you've ordained through the scriptures. Lord, I pray for Bob as he gives us the gospel and your word through 1 Corinthians 5. We pray that we would have ears to hear, that we'd be not just hearers of the word, but doers. And we pray that you would do that for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.